What does active learning look like in the laboratory? And which students benefit most from it? Join us for this episode of The Teaching Lab, in which Drs. Larry Bloomer and Chris Beck share their findings about the impact of guided inquiry on the academic outcomes of the least prepared students. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Teaching Lab. I am your host, Angela Bauer. Each week, I will keep you current on the latest findings regarding teaching and learning innovations that foster deep learning and inclusivity in your classrooms. Whether you are currently a busy STEM professor or an aspiring academic, this convenient, on-the-go, professional development podcast promises to keep you at the top of your teaching game. Well, welcome, Drs. Bloomer and Beck, to the Teaching Lab. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. I'm hoping you could start out by telling us a bit about yourselves, your institutional affiliation, and then your research and teaching interests. I'm Lawrence Bloomer. I'm professor of biology at Morehouse College, which is a small, historically black liberal arts college here in Atlanta. My research interests are in the areas of ecology, evolutionary biology, and science teaching pedagogy, mainly focusing on laboratory pedagogy. I, I teach courses in ecology and environmental studies, introductory biology. I'm also involved in a phage hunters course that we have at Morehouse College, which is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute program. And uh, I'm Chris Beck. I'm a professor of pedagogy in the Department of Biology at Emory University in Atlanta, uh, which is a R1 research, private research university. My research interests are, broadly speaking, in evolutionary ecology and along with Larry in uh, laboratory education. I teach ecology and ecology lab, comparative physiology, our intro class for non-majors, and I also teach a study abroad course in Australia on invasive species ecology. Oh, that sounds very fun. All right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here today. And the reason we are holding this discussion today is to talk about your recent publication in, in Life Sciences Education about guided inquiry labs and their impact on students. We know that active learning has benefits for a, a broad array of students, but that some populations of students benefit disproportionately from, from active learning in general. So I'm hoping you could start out by telling us what we know about the benefits of active learning just in general in the classroom and then also in the teaching laboratory. This is Larry. I, I guess I can start. I mean, there, there's certainly a number of benefits. Some of the benefits that we've certainly seen ourselves, as, as well as in the literature, is that just in terms of the way a course works and the way students interact with, with a faculty member, students are much more invested in, in what they're doing. In, in an active learning laboratory. But in, in, in critical terms, we find that students actually perform better in their course. That is, they get better grades. They learn more effectively in active learning environments. We can measure it in a variety of ways, but certainly the currency that students are most interested in, and maybe for that matter, the currency that faculty are interested in is, you know, how well did students do on the final examination? What kind of grades did they get? They do better. Um, in active learning type uh, situations, whether it's a lecture course or a laboratory course. Um, you, Chris, do you want to speak to the laboratory? Well, I, was, I was just going to add, you know, although we didn't look at it in our study, there's, you know, evidence that active learning 
increases students' likelihood to persist in the sciences, um, you know, because it engages them more, they're more interested, also because their course performance is better, right, their likelihood of actually staying in the sciences, getting involved in research, pursuing sciences as postgraduate work, tend to be higher for students that are in these active learning classes. And just, just back to your comments about the engagement of students in an active classroom versus more traditional uh, approaches to teaching, you can just, in my opinion, feel the, the difference in energy level. You know, I've taught both ways, and the active learning classroom and also the active learning lab is just so much more, um, it's noisier. <laughs> it is, Students yeah. are more animated, and, and it's, it's fun to teach that way. So. so the gains associated with active learning aren't uniform among students. So who actually benefits the most from active learning? It does vary with study. In some studies, you get benefits across the board. But in, in other cases, we find that there might be no effect for the students who come in best prepared, and yet the students who are least well prepared, based on some kind of pretest assessment, that those students who come in least well prepared, we see the largest gains in those students. The learning gains associated with active learning, both of you have said in, in past studies, sometimes have been obscured based on the way that we analyze the results of those studies. So can you speak more to that? Sure. To sort of follow up on what Larry was saying, because we do see at times these differential impacts depending on student preparation. So, you know, students that are well prepared, we don't see a lot of gains whereas students that are least well-prepared, we see gains there. When they're all considered together uh, simultaneously as a combined cohort, the absence of an effect in the best-prepared students sort of washes out any effect that you would see in the least well-prepared students. So mixing together students uh, based on varied backgrounds together in the same group, positive effects get washed out by you know, no effects or, or negative effects. And so, you know, one of the things that we were particularly interested in in the study was dividing out students based on their prior preparation to see if there are differential effects that we wouldn't see if we look at it overall. So your recent publication focuses on active learning in the laboratory, and I thought it might be important just to step back for a moment and talk about what you mean by active learning in the laboratory, because I think a lot of times the assumption is made mistakenly that just by nature, uh, laboratories are active because you're physically moving things around and students are engaged in whatever protocol or exercise it is that's placed before them. But there's a difference between sort of traditional cookbook labs and, and specifically what you're talking about. So can you tell us what you mean by active learning in the lab? I think the, the best way to think about it is to think about the way in which we teach laboratory courses as being a continuum. One end of the continuum is where the faculty member sets all of the parameters, which is to say that one end of the continuum, we might fairly call it cookbook, because what the faculty member is doing is telling the students everything that they are going to do. The students have no autonomy. They're not making any meaningful decisions about that work that they're actually doing. The faculty member is simply giving them a recipe and 
The students are told to follow the recipe. In many cases, they already know what the result is that they're expected to get. That's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum is the gold standard for research by any measure, and that's where the students are doing independent research. They're not being told by a faculty member anything. They're told, well, you know, go ahead, you know, you can do what you want to do here. And, and that's what we would call scientific research in the purest sense. Then in the middle of that continuum is something that Chris and I would call guided inquiry. And that's where the faculty member certainly has some input. The faculty member sets the context for the study and the faculty member decides what the question is going to be. But the students design the experiment and develop the protocol, and then conduct the experiment. And I would just sort of add on to that in that in that guided inquiry approach. You know, the students are proposing experiments, but they're guided by the faculty member through feedback, right? So, you know, the students perhaps present their experimental ideas to the rest of the class, and through questioning, the instructor will guide them towards a better experimental design. But maybe the litmus test is that if there's only one possible experimental design, it's not what we would call authentic or active learning. Okay, I see what you mean. All right, so tell us about the hypotheses that you tested in your recent study then that was published in Life Sciences Education, um, the, the one that focuses on guided inquiry. There are always a number of things, but certainly one of the things we wanted to know was whether we see gains in student experimental design skills and in student scientific reasoning skills as an outcome of being involved in a guided inquiry module in their laboratory courses. In our particular study, all of the students were doing, well, I shouldn't say they were doing similar things. They were doing different experiments. Um, but they were all working with the same model system. But at, at each institution where this was done, the students really were doing very different experiments, and they could be in completely different kinds of courses in biology. Some of them were at the introductory level, some of them were at the advanced level. But in every case, the intent was that they were engaged in a guided inquiry module that their instructor was implementing. We wanted to answer the question, does it make a difference in sort of measurable skills gain? Again, scientific reasoning or experimental design. And also, you know, more specifically and related to what we were talking about earlier, we looked at it overall, but also based on student preparation. So in our analysis, we divided up students into quartiles based on their scores on these assessments at the beginning of the semester, and then looked at whether we saw different gains de depending on those pretest scores. Okay. So did you have uh, specific guidelines for the investigators that were involved with the study, those that were implementing these guided inquiry labs? Did they have a specific length of a module that they were asked to incorporate into their courses? In other words, was it a month-long unit on guided inquiry? Was it semester-long? It varied. It, it, it varied. So we surveyed the faculty after the fact, asked them about you know their laboratory teaching. Most of the modules lasted a couple of weeks. Yeah, two to three weeks. 46% of the modules were two to three weeks in length. All these faculty whose classes were part of the project had attended uh, faculty professional development workshops that Larry and I had run on guided inquiry in lab courses and specifically using this 
bean beetle model system for inquiry-based teaching in labs. So they all had similar faculty training on how to implement guided inquiry labs. I see. Company investigators were involved. It varied from study to study. So in the study looking at at scientific reasoning, there were 11 different institutions involved. And then in the study on experimental design skills, there were six different institutions involved. Okay. For those of our listeners who are interested in perhaps assessing scientific reasoning in their courses, can you tell us a little bit about the instrument that you used that you administered at the start and then at the end of the semester that assessed students' um, scientific reasoning skills? For the scientific reasoning, we used a subset of questions from sort of a long-standing assessment that was developed by Lawson to look at scientific reasoning skills. The questions that we picked were sort of more targeted towards experimental design aspects of scientific reasoning skills. Um, The way that that instrument is set up is that Uh, It gives a particular scenario, and then based on that scenario, there are two multiple choice questions associated with that scenario. Often the first question is asking for a very specific answer, and then the second question asks, uh, is sort of looking at an explanation for that answer or, or a justification for the answer. So it's a it's a multiple choice instrument, so it's it's fairly easy to implement and, and score. Also, can you tell us what tool you use then to assess students' experimental design abilities? There's um, an, an instrument called the Experimental Design Assessment Tool. This was a um, it's a it's a free response type assessment that was developed by Karen Serum and her collaborators. The basis for that particular assessment. Again, it was used in a pre-test, post-test format. There is a prompt where students are asked to evaluate an assertion by designing an experiment. And there's a a rubric for then scoring that response. It's a pretty standard, it's it's a fairly easy rubric to learn how to use, and it allows you to then score the responses that students provide. When we, when we actually did that particular uh, assessment, we wanted to score it blindly. We got both the pretest and the post-test responses from our collaborators at the institutions that were doing this with us, and then we, we simply put numerical codes on those responses that would allow us to then score them without knowing whether it was the pretest or the post-test or who it came ah, from. Okay, I see. So Chris and I actually would sit down side by side and score these things. It was only after they were all scored that we then determined which ones were pretests, which ones were post-tests, and then made the comparisons. I see. Just so our listeners are aware of this, I will be putting references to each of those assessment tools in the show notes so that they know where to find them. Tell us about the results of your study then, and I'll just let you start pointing out the the major findings and taking the discussion where you'd like it to go. Uh, To me, there were sort of two major findings, and and this was fairly consistent across our two studies, our scientific reasoning and our experimental design study, and that is that, you know, in general, when we look at change for improvement in scientific reasoning or experimental design skills, 
for all students combined, we see very little change. So it's either non-significant or it's a marginal change. However, when we divided it up based on prior preparation that we measured based on pretest scores, those students in the lowest quartile, so those that we considered to be least well-prepared, showed highly significant gains in both scientific reasoning and experimental design skills from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester. Whereas, you know, most often we didn't see those gains in, in the higher quartiles. Just one quick side note. Were the questions that you used after the guided inquiry modules were implemented, were those questions embedded in exams or was it a completely separate assessment tool that they were asked to complete? I'm just curious, what was the level of student investment in, you know, in terms of the energy, the effort that they put yeah, into Yeah, no, it's a really good question because the assessments were completely separate. And it's actually our impression that students were not particularly invested in it because their grade didn't depend on their performance on those assessments. One could have done it differently, but there are trade-offs here. I mean, both the scientific reasoning assessment and the experimental design assessment were on content independent of the actual activities that the students were doing. I mean, it was a, we were trying to get at skills, but it, it wasn't about bean beetles. It wasn't about the experiment they were doing. The short answer is no, it wasn't embedded in a test that the students were going to get a grade on. It's one of the conundrums in, in education research is that to get institutional review board clearance, oftentimes you're not going to be allowed to require that a student participate in, in an assessment, unless, of course, it's part of the content of the course right, and right. intentionally didn't want it to be part of the content of the course and it would have been difficult to make it part of the content because the nature of the experiments were very different at each institution at least in terms of the subject now the process was very similar there, there was certainly going to be some variation in the degree to which students were invested in you know doing their best and and we're aware of that and and i think at least for the best prepared students we may have seen that lack of investment borne out in some of the responses we got. Certainly in the free responses to the experimental design assessment, we, we sometimes see students not giving very complete answers in the post-test. But, you know, all that being said, you know, that the, in spite of the variability that can creep into your model based on what you just described, it really does point to the power of this pedagogy for those students who have the least preparation because you did see, you know, despite all of the above, um, yes. you, you saw a statistically significant effect in that lowest quartile. Yes, we agree. Yeah, so, so that's wonderful. Okay, so um, any difference, did you ferret out any differences about the impact of guided inquiry in lower level versus upper level? Was that at all part of your analysis? We did look at course levels. We had students in both upper level and lower level courses. The general finding was that course level did not have a, a large impact on, on gains. Okay. These differences across quartiles were fairly consistent no matter whether it was upper level classes or, or lower level classes. Well, this is fascinating work and it actually um, it, it, it dovetails nicely with some things that we're doing here at High Point University. We, we used uh, a different instrument to assess students' scientific reasoning skills. It's the test of scientific literacy skills, but likewise what we have seen in some of our classes that have 
inquiry built into the laboratory curriculum is that the most profound changes that we see are in those students in the lowest quartile. You know, so it's not published work, but nonetheless, there you have it. I know the two of you collaborate a fair amount on some of your pedagogy research. Where do you intend to go next? Any, any teasers you want to throw out there about what you're working on now? Absolutely. <laughs> we have a new project that is NSF funded that we began in October. We will be running four faculty development workshops. The biology part of it is looking at the interactions between bean beetles and their microbiome communities, looking at the bacterial communities that are in the gut of, of these beetles. There, there's surprisingly little understood about insect microbiome interactions. So the biology of, of this is that Chris and his collaborators here at Emory have developed a, a very nice protocol for implementing a undergraduate laboratory activity in which students can actually evaluate the microbiomes of these beetles. But we're not going to specify the actual experiments that faculty do. We will bring faculty here to Emory, train them on how to use this protocol, and then send them home to implement it at their own institution, where they and their students will decide what experiments to conduct. And then we're interested in seeing those data. That's the biology part. The education part is that we're very interested in trying to understand how important student autonomy in, in what questions to ask in an experimental activity. We think we can get at that in this study by having the faculty who participate in our workshops and then go back to their home institution to implement, having them implement twice. So one time they implement, the faculty member will decide what the question is. So that's like guided inquiry. The second time, the faculty member defers to the students and the students decide what the question is going to be. And that's an important question to ask because Course-based research, which is really the, the next step in uh, implementing inquiry and, and active learning in laboratory courses, there are barriers to implementing course-based research, and it, it's not clear to anyone yet how important uh, student autonomy in selecting questions may be in getting the gains that we know we will get. And so we'd like to get at that question. Okay, that sounds like a, a wonderful study. Is participation in this study in the workshops available to those who are interested? In other words, can they contact you or is it are, are the participants predetermined? So the participants are not not predetermined. Um, so we're we're doing these workshops. it's it's one per year over the next four years. Um, they're targeted at different institution types. So this may we're focusing on minority serving institutions. Um, the following year will be for faculty at two-year schools, and then faculty at research universities, and then finally faculty from liberal arts colleges. We found, based on our, our past work, that the barriers to implementing this type of lab curriculum reform tend to vary based on institution type, the issues that faculty need to deal with when you're rolling it out to large numbers of students at a big research university are different than if you're at a two-year school or something like that. And right. so why we've very intentionally taken this approach of targeting particular institution types mm -hmm. in, in each year. That said, within a particular year, we have an open call for applications for anybody who's interested. And the grant funds the travel and participation by a pair of faculty from each institution 
to Emory to participate in the workshop. Covers, uh, you know, some of the lab expenses associated with implementing the curriculum back at their home institutions. Okay, so for those listeners who are interested in, in applying, how might they get more information? All the information is on our Bean Beetle website, so beanbeetles.org, and, Great. you know, every everything that they would want to know about the workshops. Okay. And the application's completely an online process. Okay, yeah. got it. Wonderful, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks for filling us in on that. So lastly, I'd like to end our podcast discussions with giving our guests the opportunity to share with us their best teaching moment. So do you have anything you'd like to share with our listeners? This is the hardest question. <laughs> you, you realize this is the hardest question. <laughs> You know, best teaching moment. I, I, mean, I think maybe for me it's when I've worked with students in a laboratory and they'll come up to me afterwards and they'll say, you know, we never did anything like this in any of our other courses. Mm-hmm. I'm upset at, at one level that, that that's the case, right. but pleased at the same time. What we're doing in our classes, both Chris and I, and what our collaborators are doing when they implement an inquiry-based activity in their laboratory is what everybody should be doing. And it's not hard to do, and it, and it can be done incrementally. So for me, the best moments were when I realized that, yes, we're really doing the right thing. Right, right. And those are the moments, truthfully, that likely inspired all of us to be scientists. It certainly wasn't going into a lab where we, you know, completed a cookbook protocol. It was actually yeah. being engaged in inquiry. At least that's what lit my fire. That's, so No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. What about you, uh, Chris? Uh, you know, I guess I would say a similar thing. And oddly, it's often when the experiments we do in my ecology lab, you know, many of which are field experiments, completely blow up and don't work. <laughs> Students realize that this is what research is often about, and that's okay. And this was not a pre-canned thing that is going to always work out. You know, in many cases, it's something that I've not ever tried before at all. We just go with it and troubleshoot and see what we can do. I think those are important learning moments for students. Absolutely. We, we just had on Monday night a, a panel of undergraduate students talking about undergraduate research in an effort to inform incoming freshmen and, and you know, tell them about the importance and the the, the beauty of it and the challenges of it and what you just described in terms of, you know, having experiments that completely blow up in your face, <laughs> uh, their consensus was that's actually a lot of what you experience during undergraduate <laughs> research. And, you know, a lot of um, success ultimately is, is building up the resilience to endure all of that, to ultimately get to the point where you're figuring out what's going on. Exactly. So anyway. Well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful discussion. I so appreciate you taking the time to tell us more about your study and best wishes to you. And again, I encourage our listeners to go to the show notes where you can learn more about the work of Drs. Bloomer and Beck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've learned something new that will inform your teaching and ultimately be of benefit to your students. If you have an idea for a future show topic, please contact us at theteachinglabpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join us in two weeks when we will feature the work of another leading STEM teaching innovator.